As unprecedented as COVID-19 feels, the world has been through so many disasters and catastrophes in the past, and many of them have been much, much worse and much more deadly than the pandemic. And it's how a society handles a disaster, either whether it's man-made or natural, that reveals how its power structures work or all, all too often how they fail. Historian and author Neil Ferguson looks at disasters through the ages in his new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Neil, Ver Neil Ferguson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the author of 15 books. Neil, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Alan. Uh, the cover of your book shows a man calmly putting on a golf green while there's a forest fire raging behind them. And I'm wondering if, if, to you, that's a visual metaphor for what political leaders in the West were doing uh, in the early months of 2020. It certainly is. This photograph that caught my eye uh, back in 2017, it was in fact taken uh, that year. And I thought to myself, you know, that captures how we responded to the initial news of a new coronavirus uh, in Wuhan, China, through January February into mid-March, I was just astonished at the kind of complacency, uh, the, the myopia, not only in the United States where I live, but all over the Western world, in Europe, in the United Kingdom. We, we just carried on with our golf game, trying to sink that putt with the raging far behind us. I also wanted to show in the cover of the book, this is not a book just about COVID-19. In fact, only the last three chapters deal with the, the recent disaster. It's a general history of disaster. And the problem is, that we generally respond to the beginning of a disaster with this kind of uh, nonchalance uh, and complacency. Um, let's talk about those three chapters at, at the end. You describe them uh, as a sort of a history, but then almost maybe take it more as a diary. As a historian, it must have been, was it unusual to begin writing about an event that was still underway? Yes, and I think it, it was an important exercise. Sometimes people forget that, that it's much easier to write history long after the event than uh, to write it in real time. But in fact, we need to be able to understand historical events as they're happening uh, to make decisions in real time uh, and not long after the fact. So I exercise to try to write the history of an unfinished event and to show that uh, when I was putting the book to bed, which was back in October, there were several futures uh, that lay ahead of us, and it was impossible to know which one we'd get. There was a really bad future in which the vaccines didn't work and the pandemic just kept going. Uh, and then there was a very good future in which uh, everything went great. Not only did the vaccines work, uh, but we got on top of the, the virus by the end of the year. In the end, we ended up where, somewhere in the middle, where the vaccines worked very well, but the, but, but the virus mutated more than we had expected, and, and that's why, of course, this pandemic isn't over. Um, I want to talk about populism and populist leaders. Um, when you look at countries like India, uh, when you look at um, the United States in 2020, Brazil, uh, some would draw a line between populist leaders and worse outcomes in terms of excess mortality from COVID-19, but you don't. And I wonder if you could explain why. Well, it's very tempting to do it. And, and many journalists did last year because it was so easy to say Donald Trump is the reason we're having excess mortality in uh, the U.S., 
same goes for Boris Johnson in the UK, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. I, I read so many articles saying this is all about populist leaders. And in reality, though I don't deny that these guys made many, many mistakes, as has Narendra Modi in India, when you look closely, there are two things that jump out. First, there are countries that did worse that certainly did not have populist leaders. Uh, Peru, for example, has the highest excess mortality of really any country for which we have data. And, and Peru's presidency is notoriously weak. It's really Congress that calls the shots in that country. Uh, uh, the second point, which I think is really important, uh, is that it wasn't really presidential decisions that led to the biggest and most costly failures last year. The biggest and most costly failures in every Western country, failure to ramp up testing at the beginning, failure to do any kind of contact tracing, uh, failure to isolate the vulnerable, especially in early care homes, and failure to enforce quarantines. And it's impossible to say that those mistakes, which really had the biggest costs in terms of loss of life, were direct consequences of presidential or prime ministerial decisions. They really were all failures at the level of public health bureaucracy and sometimes at the state or provincial level rather than at the national level. We need to recognize this, not to exonerate Trump, because Trump made so many mistakes it's boring to list them all, but to show that our real point of failure was further down the chain of command in public health bureaucracies or at the regional level. And we need to recognize this because otherwise the same thing is gonna happen when another disaster strikes. That's really one reason I wanted to write this book sooner rather than later, because I could see people drawing the wrong conclusions from what had gone wrong. And it was convenient, it was tempting to blame it all on Trump, but do we really believe that if Joe Biden had somehow got the job of president a year earlier, we'd have done fine and there'd be no excess mortality. That's just not plausible. Uh, Ron Klain, who's Joe Biden's chief of staff, acknowledged in 2019 that if swine flu in 2009 had been as bad as COVID, it would have been as big a disaster, more or less. I mean, that was his basic argument. They would have had a disaster had it not been for the fact that swine flu was a pretty mild virus. Uh, you also lay a lot of blame at the feet of media um, and, and you point out that the narratives that media like to tell are about leaders, and so reinforcing this belief that all of the power structure uh, emanates from the top. But if if you look at networks, that's not the way it actually works. Yeah, I use the, the uh, idea that networks are really crucial in two ways. First, obviously, you can't spread virus if there aren't social networks that can transmit it from Wuhan all the way to Toronto, or for that matter, San Francisco. But secondly, the networks that we have formed online and through mainstream media were, were networks for transmitting false information, misleading information about the virus, about possible cures or therapies, and, and more recently about the vaccines. And that has made the job of managing this crisis much harder because there are really significant proportions of the U.S. population that believe truly crazy things about all three things, about the virus itself, about possible treatments, and above all, about the vaccines. And that makes it hard for us to overcome this disaster, because as long as there's a, a residue of, I don't know, a fifth of people who just won't get vaccinated, there's going to be a fourth wave in the United States. The only question is, will it be in the summer in the southern states when the air con is on full and everybody's indoors, or it will, will it wait until the fall and colder weather in the northeast? But as long as we leave a significant proportion of the population unvaccinated, we're going to get more COVID, that's for sure. 
Um, let's move to something that a little more controversial, I think, that your uh, assertion that lockdowns uh, were uh, too heavy a cudgel. And do I, do I get this right? I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth that, that, that perhaps if we hadn't done an extreme economic lockdown, and I understand that lockdowns mean different things in different places, but that that, that was an, a move that was uh, greater than was required. I think one has to tread very warily here, and I do in the book. Uh, lockdowns, uh, that's a term that covers a multitude of measures. I try and break it down. Some of the measures made a lot of sense. By the time we had got to mid-March, and the virus was pretty much everywhere, and we'd, we'd blown the opportunity to be Taiwan or South Korea or New Zealand, then we didn't have a lot of good options. And there clearly would have, there had to be some measures taken to stop further spread in case we overwhelmed the, the hospital systems. That's undeniable. But some of the measures taken were not rooted in science and were very counterproductive. I'll give you a couple of examples. Here in California, they closed the public parks and the beaches, despite the fact that there was no evidence at all of outdoor transmission from any of the literature that was coming out of China or Italy at that time. I couldn't understand what they were thinking. That clearly was counterproductive. It stopped people being able to get outdoors where they were actually safe. Uh, then there were, I think, school closures for much too long. Uh, it was perfectly possible, we could see this uh, in a bunch of Asian countries, to run schools uh, even while the virus was still on the loose. There were measures that you could uh, take, particularly younger children, teens, not significant uh, spreaders uh, of the virus. And so to shut down the California schools for a whole year, that has caused a significant and lasting harm uh, to the kids that it's uh, affected. So I think it would be more accurate to say but some of what we did in the name of lockdowns back in the spring of 2020 was clearly overkill, had almost no public health benefit and significant costs. When we tightened restrictions later in the year, and that happened on both sides of the Atlantic, the restrictions were noticeably different because people had learned to do this better. So it's not, it's not simple. You can't just say we should have done no lockdowns. Uh, apart from anything else, there's some really interesting research showing in states in the U.S. that did very light lockdowns, people still altered their mobility. They stopped going out. They stopped going to restaurants, even if the restaurants were open. And that means that you couldn't avoid the economic shock. Even if you refused to do a lockdown, people changed their behavior radically to avoid the virus, uh, that you would have had an economic shock either way. And that was also the Swedish experience. Their approach was very light touch. They did not really go down the lockdown route. Um, and, and in the end, in fact, they suffered a comparable economic shock because Swedes still had to restrict their behavior to avoid the spread of the, of the virus. I mean, in reality, people, as my colleague at the Hoover Institution, John Cochran, predicted, people are not dumb. They adapt their behavior if they realize that there are people getting in hospital and even dying from a, a new disease. And I think actually adaptive behavior mattered more than any measures that were introduced by governments in our response to this uh, to this disaster. I'm speaking with uh, Professor Neil Ferguson about his new book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Uh, if indeed this is the end stage of this, and I appreciate there's no firm evidence that that is the case, COVID continues to throw us uh, surprises, but if we are in the end stages of this, what does history tell us about how societies act as catastrophes wane and end? Well, I think one thing that is clear from history is that we want these things to be over before they are over. 
and, and you could see that even last year. There were constantly people saying, well, this, this is the end, it's coming to an end. That was just the first wave. And of course, the second wave in the United States, or the third wave, if you count the little one in the summer, the third wave is the worst. So it's very dangerous to say it's over. Uh, this is the beginning of the end. Uh, it might just be the end of the beginning. I mean, think of the biggest plague of all, which was the, the Black Death, the bubonic uh, plague that swept Europe in the 14th century. That kept on coming back for more. And it wasn't uh, until the late 17th century, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, that the last outbreak of bubonic plague struck London. So you, you, you've got a recurrent problem from the 1340s to all the way to the 1660s. I think there's a significant chance that COVID becomes endemic. And I think most epidemiologists and other public health experts these days would agree that the way we're going, uh, this thing uh, can mutate, means uh, that we're not going to get the world vaccinated fast enough to prevent further mutations happening. And therefore, it probably will be uh, a seasonal problem uh, like uh, influenza and maybe for the initial year or two, from now, a worse problem. Uh, I don't think, in other words, that we're going to be able to eradicate uh, this virus. We're going to have to learn to live with it. I don't think future waves will be anything like as bad as the big waves of 2020 and, and early 2021. So don't let me sound like I'm Dr. Doom. In many ways, my book is a, a relatively optimistic one. I think we can get on top of this. And, you know, a few years from now, I think it's going to be in a, in a similar place as influenza. We kind of just get our we get our annual shot and we get used to the fact that uh, that each year the proportion of elderly people uh, do die of this of this disease. Influenza was a catastrophic event in the great pandemics of uh, of the past 1918, 19 in particular. Now it's it's routine and we don't get excited and. You know, influenza deaths don't make the front page of uh, of the globe, right? But I think that will be where uh, COVID ends up, something that we get accustomed to, the way we got accustomed over the great many uh, deadly infectious diseases. Um, it, it, taking that into account, and as we watch here from the province of Ontario and the country of Canada with some envy of the uh, the reopening that's happening south of the border, and we watch... Um, crowds in, you know, sporting events, so on and so forth. I'm wondering what you see in terms of economic activity in the near future. There have been, you know, many think pieces about, you know, this is the roaring 20s that we're about to enter. We might be entering a, a, a stage of hyperinflation. Uh, what do you see coming in the short term? Well, I don't think it's going to be the roaring 20s in the sense of an entire decade of uh, of, of boom, which was what the United States experienced in the 1920s. Uh, I think you, you're going to get the roaring 2021, though. I mean, this year is on fire, uh, and uh, we're seeing, if anything, economic overheating in the U.S. economy right now. I think Larry Summers's prediction that we were overdoing the stimulus and that this would have an inflation, uh, an inflationary uh, risk has turned out to be very right so far, and the Fed will be will be lucky if it gets away with this. My own sense is uh, that they are going to have to do something, maybe even before the end of the year, uh, to tamp down the, uh, the kind of uh, overheating, and and that means that this this won't be a decade of boom. It's going to probably be, be measured in in months rather than in years. As for hyperinflation, no, forget that. I mean, we're talking here about. Uh, inflation, uh, which could go as high as 5% or could 
turn out to just mean revert back to 2%. And, and nobody really knows with any great certainty which of those outcomes it will be. But remember, I mean, hyperinflation is 50% per month. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to hyperinflation. Uh, there may be some emerging market countries or developing countries that could get into that mess. I mean, the Venezuelans and the Zimbabweans have already done it, but but for the U.S. economy, for the Canadian economy, we're talking about single digits, uh, plus or minus uh, a couple of percentage points. Uh, one last question, if uh, if I might, uh, Professor Ferguson. Uh, I, I was so interested earlier this week that we got this news about El Salvador uh, to accept Bitcoin uh, as legal tender, and I'm just wondering... Uh, what does that mean for the future of crypto? And is is that an increase in threat to uh, government and central bank-backed currencies? I think that the pandemic has accelerated a monetary revolution. Uh, rather, as the Black Death did, and the world, at least the European world, became much more coin-based, much more monetized after the Black Death than it had been before. And in the same way, crypto, Bitcoin, and all the decentralized finance coins and tokens have received a great boost from the disruption of 2020-2021. Uh, the big issue at the moment seems to me to be how much does the how much do the world's governments regulate uh, crypto? Because that's the uncertainty that investors face. We just don't know what they're going to do next. The regulators are kind of making it up as they go along. The other big question is, does the rest of the world copy the Chinese central bank digital currency? Different problem. You know, Bitcoin is decentralized. China's central bank digital currency will be highly centralized and will allow the central bank to have total surveillance over all transactions. My own view is that we should not be copying that, that that is the wrong way to go, but we should certainly be upgrading our payments infrastructure, which in many ways is a kind of 1970s era product, but is kind of slow. I mean, how long do you have to wait for the funds to hit your account these days? Way too long is the answer for most North American banks and their clients. So we need to clearly upgrade uh, how our financial system works. I think crypto is a part of the uh, the revolution that will produce that upgrade. Uh, but I'm very skeptical about the idea that we need a central bank digital currency just because the Chinese have one. Neil Ferguson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alan. Neil Ferguson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution within Stanford University and the author of a new book, Doom, the politics of catastrophe.